broadcasting in the evening on WCPT 820 Chicago's Progressive Talk and in the afternoon on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Aaron Rupar, uh, Roops with the Scoops, is kind enough to join us. We've been talking to him for years. Of course, Public Notice is his exceptional site uh, that you can find all sorts of great information on uh, that his, he's covering the news that no one else really wants to do it, and he does it so well. Public notice, let's just call it public service, because it is a public service. This man watched CPAC this weekend, and he deserves a, a medal and an award and a parade and a ceremony. Aaron Rupar, kind enough to join us today to talk about that and some other things. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Okay, so you watched CPAC. How many years have you watched the entire CPAC and, and oh. reported on it? You know, I was trying to actually figure this out over the weekend, at least since 2018. Wow. Um, and I think I watched 17, and at that time I wasn't quite in the mode of live tweeting and posting videos, but um, I remember writing a couple articles for Think Progress at the time about the 2017 CPAC, but in terms of threads that you can find on Twitter of me posting videos of all the various speeches and whatnot, 2018. From watching it and observing it as you have for so many years, and once again, thank you for your service, sir. The uh, What did you notice? What was different about this year or the last few years? What's changed there at CPAC that you witnessed? Well, the one that stands out for sure, and this isn't uh, new to this year, but it's kind of been a gradual transformation over the years, is how it's really become just a celebration of Trump. And um, there was a little bit like the, the 2021 installment, I remember being kind of interesting because that was in around this time, you know, late February, early March. So it was shortly after January 6th. And I remember that, you know, there was a little bit of squishiness. There were a couple speakers who obliquely said that you had critical things to say about January 6th and, th- and things like that. But then Trump delivered the keynote, and that was actually one of the big milestones in terms of him kind of being rehabbed in the Republican Party and solidifying, uh, you know, his continued dominance over it. And, um, you know, so that was definitely the case this year uh, again. But the one thing that I think was, was a little bit different this year, even compared to last year, years prior, is that there are far fewer uh, members of Congress speaking. Mm-hmm. It really feels like CPAC has become kind of more of a fringe event in that way with a lot of right-wing media people, um, kind of like local politicians. And so it was kind of lacking in star power. Um, you know, you had the big Trump speech at the end, and, you know, you had J.D. Vance, uh, Tommy, tu- Tommy Tuberville spoke, uh, a few people like that. But, uh, you know, in terms of content for me, it was a lot of speakers that I wasn't familiar with, and that tends to make it a little bit less interesting. And you could see that in the attendance where, uh, especially for the sessions that were pre uh, the Trump speech on the last day, there were a lot of empty seats. Um, it just didn't seem like there was as much buzz this year for whatever reason. Yeah, so that was not just an illusion that, there, that this is, uh, once again, at this core event, which is really appealing to Trump's core base. There were there was an attendance issue this year. Yeah, I mean, you could really notice it in the crowd responses where it just didn't sound like a lot of the speakers were getting very loud responses at all. And then when they would pan to the audience, um, you could see that there were a lot of empty seats and that was not the case for Trump's speech. You know, it seemed like he still packed the room, and it was kind of the normal Trump audience for a CPAC speech. But, you know, I'm not sure if that um, – it's kind of the chicken and egg thing, where I'm not sure if the attendance was down because they had kind of less noteworthy speakers or, you know, if it kind of went the other way, where the fact that it's not drawing like it used to, you know, kind of results in them not being able to get the top uh, conservative people – speaking there but uh you could you could very much notice that attendance was down in the in the earlier sessions 
Uh, he comes off that South Carolina, of course, as well this weekend. And I wanted to get your thoughts. As a person that's been watching this, too, one of the things that I've been kind of raising an eyebrow to me, at least, is this 30 to 40 percent of the Republican Party that definitely does seem to be turned off of Donald Trump. Now, uh, that whether or not that translates to November, we should remind everybody that in 2020, Trump got more votes than in 2016. So a lot of people who said I've had it with Trump and babies in cages still voted for Trump. That being said, this South Carolina run, and once again in Nikki Haley's home state, 40 percent, that's not that's a pretty big problem. I went back and looked at Carter versus Kennedy in 1980, and for the most part, Carter never had too many, you know, there was a few showings in Massachusetts went Kennedy's way and stuff like that, but it wasn't this bad yet. You know, this is kind of the un- the thing that people don't want to talk about. Your analysis, as you've looked at this, is this something? Is there just really not anything there, or is this something more that you know really needs to be talked about in a in a larger discussion? Yeah, I'm with you, and I think that's you know a dynamic that a lot of the mainstream media coverage kind of glosses over is the fact that Trump, for all intents and purposes, is an incumbent. Um, you know, I mean, he if you ask him, yeah. he won the 2020 election, and. Well, I don't think a lot of people necessarily believe that, um, you know, he has all the trappings of incumbency where he controls the whole party. You know, Ronald McDaniel steps down as RNC chair, and it seems like he's basically going to pick his daughter-in-law to kind of step in there. You know, so he, he controls the Republican Party, similar to how an incumbent president does. And so when you have 40 percent um, of voters in a place like South Carolina not voting for him, yeah, I mean, I think that does speak to, you know, some uh, discontent with him. You know, on the other side of that, though, I really don't know if that's going to translate to November. I mean, we've seen this time and time again now with Trump, where you go back to 2016, uh, you have the Access Hollywood tape in October, you have all these Republicans coming out that month and kind of saying, calling on him in some cases to, to get out of the race and things like that. But when push came to shove, most of them still voted for Trump. So I don't know if this really, you know, signals any sort of big time trouble for him in November. I mean, you know, still, when you look at credible polling that's coming out on a daily or weekly basis, you know, it's pretty much neck and neck. Some polls have Biden up, some polls have Trump up, but, you know, that's going to be um, our lot this year as a country is that we're going to have to sweat out another very close election that's probably going to come down to two or three states. And so I don't, you know, personally um, have the idea that Trump, you know, only getting 60 percent in South Carolina uh, is going to signal anything negative for him come November, but I do think it's notable that, you know, for, for a guy who's running basically as an incumbent, 40% of Republicans not voting for him, uh, that means something. And I do think that, um, you know, that should be part of the conversation when we talk about results like what just happened in South Carolina. Well, it, 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 is it a case where, I mean, is there a number for you that you say to yourself, okay, fine, if 40%, sure, 30, 30 of the, 30% of that is going to go vote for him. But if it, where's a number for you where you say to yourself, if this amount of Republicans stay home really did get turned off by January 6th and all these criminal indictments, if this percent stays home, Trump really has no path to victory. Is there a number there that you've seen? They, are you, you, you've kind of formulated? You know, I, I haven't formulated that. And again, I guess just with the, the assumption that I'm working with, which is that most Republicans will ultimately come home and vote for him instead of Joe Biden. Now, um, you know, if there's even 5% um, that, that do, you know, end up deciding that they can't vote for him, that, you know, maybe they voted for him in 2020, but January 6th was just a bridge too far. I mean, 5% could turn the, you know, 5% of Republicans can turn a very close election into an easy Biden win. So, um, that is something that Trump has to sweat this year for sure. But, you know, I think we would see that showing up a little bit more in the polling in a way that we haven't thus far, where it, it seems like Trump is basically polling very close to where he was polling in 2020, you know, heading into that election, which we assumed was going to be a nail biter and was pretty close, even though Biden, you know, in the Electoral College had a pretty large margin. So 
Um, yeah, in terms of I, I haven't broken down the polling to that level. I mean, I am watching tonight in Michigan on the Democratic side to see, you know, what the, the percentage ends up being for the uncommitted uh, voters who choose not in the Democratic primary to vote for Biden. And, you know, based on what I've seen from some of the previous results in Michigan, it seems like if that number is between like 15 and 20 percent. That's, you know, pretty significant. And um, it depends what Democratic voters you talk to there, whether they're making that vote out of, you know, a way to kind of leverage Biden at this stage and they still have every intention of voting for him in November or if they really are out altogether on him. So, you know, you kind of have interesting, similar dynamics on both sides of this race right now. Um, but, yeah, th- those are both things to look for tonight, although it seems like on the Republican side, uh, Trump, by all indications, is going to beat Nikki Haley even by a wider margin in Michigan than he did in, in South Carolina. I, and I think that your point about the, the Democrats and if you you know vote for you know anyone but Biden is, is the real, reality is it's going to be Trump and Biden. So if you don't vote for Biden, it's, it's, one, it's by proxy a vote for Trump. So you've got to keep that in mind. I did like that. Nikki Haley, though, is in a unique position because even though Trump wants to basically – you know, just trash her. He absolutely has to have the vast majority of Nikki Haley supporters in the fold at the end. So she's going to have some level of power here. Now, I don't think the vice presidency is on the the table there, but do you see Nikki Haley at some capacity, whether it's going back to the UN being the secretary of the UN or or something of of that nature? She has some power to where she can get a position within that Trump administration if she wants it. That's been really fascinating to me because I thought that in the early stages of her campaign, she was really pulling her punches and, you know, seemed to be kind of refusing to criticize Trump. And so in that way, I really thought she was kind of angling either to be on the ticket or for some sort of role in, you know, possible second Trump administration. But it seems like that's really changed over the last month. Um, you know, she basically when it became just her and Trump as the last two standing it seems like she really started sharpening her, her attacks and calling Trump unhinged and highlighting his uh, legal difficulties, highlighting, you know, in her mind, his failure to deal with national debt, um, you know, just kind of the, the laundry list. I mean, there are, you know, and I've detailed this in the newsletter, um, some areas that she doesn't seem to want to stray into in terms of criticizing Trump over January 6th or the election denialism. Um, you know, so there are certain kind of third rails that she doesn't want to touch, but um it seems like at this point uh, the bridge is kind of burned. You know, Trump has kind of unloaded on her, calling her bird brain and using <laughs> birther smears, mocking her birth name. Yep. Um, those kind of crude tactics that we've seen him use, you know, over the years on other Republican challengers. And so I, I just don't get the sense that, you know, the, the Trump's base would have any appetite for her having a significant role. Certainly not on the ticket as VP, but I think that uh, the criticism has gotten to a point where um, I couldn't really see her serving in the administration at all. And so then I guess maybe the play is if she really does think that uh, Trump is going to lose, which he's been very direct in saying that if he's the candidate, he's going to lose to Joe Biden, then does that position her possibly as someone who could run in 2028 and kind of take the mantle of post-Trumpism? You know, maybe she's thinking along those lines. But, you know, to get back to your question, I have very much thought, you know, I found it to be interesting that her attacks have very much gotten sharper over the past month or so to a point where I think she's really kind of burned that bridge behind her. Aaron Rupar, kind enough to join us once again. Public Notice is the newsletter you need to subscribe to. Let You have a post here about an hour ago. Um, I mean, the, we're heading for a shutdown here because the House Republicans are controlled by the Howler Monkey uh, Caucus over there. You, you put out here, why don't you go through what are some of the things the House Republicans are demanding to avoid a shutdown at this point? Yeah, and this was based on reporting from the New York Times, uh, you know, that, that didn't cite specific members, but kind of ticked through some of the demands. 
that members are making of Mike Johnson as they try to, you know, either cobble together some sort of spending deal or, you know, we, we careen towards a shutdown. And one was uh, restricting the distribution of abortion medications. Um, another was no new funding for any sort of food assistance for kids, families, infants. Uh, and then the third, which you probably have in front of you, I don't have, I don't have the list right in front the of me. Fl- yeah, the VA one, it, was, it can no longer flag veterans deemed mentally incompetent for gun background checks. So, yeah, you can't, you know, right. heaven forbid you have someone who probably should not have a weapon not getting a weapon. Right. And, and now let me add to that, though, that both uh, Speaker Mike Johnson and uh, Minority Leaders Jeffries and uh, Schumer, you know, Senate Majority Leader, and then McConnell were at the White House today meeting with Biden. And coming out of that meeting, there seemed to be, uh, based on statements that each of them made, with the exception of McConnell, uh, made to the press, a lot of optimism that a deal will be reached. And, you know, it does kind of seem like Johnson is ready to just kind of kick the can down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, based on reporting I saw, he told members not to expect any major conservative policy wins in whatever deal they reach together. And he kind of primed them that they might have a couple smaller wins. But, you know, I think some of the things that we just listed, I don't think any of that's going to make it into this spending deal. So I do get the sense as, as of this afternoon that they will figure something out to kind of keep the status quo going. Uh, I believe there's really kind of a, a harder deadline that comes up in April where they have to have more of a yearly spending deal reached by that point or there will be, uh, you know, shutdown then. But my sense is that they're going to kick the can down the road for another six weeks or so. And the one thing that's interesting, we had about a minute here left, but at the same time, that restricting access to abortion medication, the Republicans are desperately trying to turn the overturning of Roe v. Wade into a win. Even Johnson, though, I think has got to, that's going to be a hard sell for him because he knows that is such an unpopular issue with the general voting public at this point. Yeah, you know, we've seen that with the whole IVF thing in Alabama this week where, um, you know, it's like the dog who caught the car where, uh, you know, they can kind of have whatever uh, restrictions they want to have in these states, but they're so unpopular that they're facing electoral backlash in general elections. And you know, that's been the one consistent theme that we've seen since June of 2022 when the Dobbs decision overturned Roe is that Republicans, you know, in these general election contests, even in red and purple states, are really struggling and abortion is a top issue. And so, you know, it's another thing to keep in mind that will really favor Democrats throughout yeah. this year. Uh, Aaron Rupar, if you're not following him on every social media site, you're just wrong. You also need to be following his exceptional newsletter uh, that is public notice. You can go get subscribed. I'm subscribed. You need to be subscribed to that. Aaron, excellent as always. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much on a Tuesday. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Aaron Rupar. And once again, if you get the chance... Follow him on the Public Notice newsletter. That is a must, an absolute must every day. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show.